0: i begin to read at verse 1. Hear the perfect word of our holy, perfect, and loving God. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, you, yet you were like the monster in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers and muddy the waters with your feet, you foul the rivers. Thus says the Lord God, Now I will spread my net over you. With the company of many peoples, and they shall lift you up in my net. I will leave you out on the land. I will cast you into the open field. I will cause all the birds of the heavens to dwell on you. I will satisfy the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your refuse. I will make the land drink the discharge of your blood. As far as the mountains and the ravines will be full of you when I extinguish you. I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud. The moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you, and I will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among the nations into lands which you have not known. I will make many peoples appalled at you, and their kings will be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them. They will tremble every moment, every man for his own life on the day of your fall. Thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon will come upon you. By the swords of the mighty ones, I will cause your hordes to fall, and all of them are tyrants of the nations, and they will devastate the pride of Egypt, and all its hordes will be destroyed. I will also destroy all its cattle from beside many waters. The foot of man will not muddy them any more. The hooves of beasts will not muddy them Then I will make their waters settle, and I will cause the rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt a desolation, the land is destitute of that which filled it. When I smite all those who live in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the lamentation, and they shall chant it. The daughters of the nation shall chant it over Egypt and over all her hordes. They shall chant it, declares the Lord God. In the twelfth year, on the fifteenth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, wail for the hordes of Egypt and bring it down, her and the daughters of the powerful nations, to the nether world with those who go down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and make your bed with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of those who are slain by the sword. She is given over to the sword. They have drawn her and all her hordes away. The strong among the mighty ones shall speak of him and his helpers from the midst of Sheol. They've gone down, they lie still, the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Assyria is there in all her company. Her graves are around about her. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword. Whose graves are set in the remotest parts of the pit. Her company is round about her grave. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword. Who spread terror in the land of the living. Elam is there and all her hordes around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who went down uncircumcised to the low parts of the earth, who instilled their terror in the land of the living and bore their disgrace with those who went down to the pit. They have made a bed for her among the slain with all her hordes. Her graves are all around it. They are all uncircumcised, slain by the sword, although their terror was instilled in the land of the living. And they bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit. They were put in the midst of the slain. Meshach, Tubal, and all their hordes are there. Their graves surround them. All of them were slain by the sword, uncircumcised, though they instilled their terror in the land of the living. Nor do they lie down beside the fallen heroes of the uncircumcised who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war and whose swords were laid under their heads, but the punishment for their iniquity rested upon their bones, though the terror of those heroes was once in the land of the living. But in the midst of the uncircumcised, you will be broken and lie with those slain by the sword. There's also Edom, its kings and its princes, all for all their might are laid with those slain by the sword. They will lie with the uncircumcised, with those who go down to the pit. There are also are the chiefs of the north, all of them, and the Sidonians, who in spite of their terror resulting from their might and shame went down with the slain. So they lay down uncircumcised with those slain by the sword and bore their disgrace with those who go down into the pit. These Pharaoh will see, and he will be comforted for all his hordes slain by the sword, even Pharaoh and all his army, declares the Lord God. Though I instilled the terror of him in the land of the living, Yet he will be made to lie down among the uncircumcised, along with those slain by the sword, even Pharaoh and all his hordes, declares the Lord God. Let's pray. Lord, you are you are God, and you are our God, you are our Lord, you are our life. You have a word of a word of warning, a word of judgment. You have words of forgiveness and grace and love. All of these words are true. You can't lie. Holy Spirit, increase our faith to receive whatever it is that you have for us from this passage. Even, even though this is a frightening portion of your word, may we believe it. May we tremble at your word. May we be those who still tremble at your word, even as we live in a, a time and a place and in a culture that mocks that such a God exists as this holy sin-judging God. Yet you are the God of heaven and earth, and we are your children, and we speak to you, Lord God, that you would speak to us and that we would listen. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The themes are very, very similar from from week to week, and... There was, a t- there was a time there, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago, that I was taking little mini breaks because I didn't want to just be excessively redundant. So I'm trying to pull from the texts, even though the general theme is judgment, as we can see. I'm trying to pull from the text some things that perhaps I haven't brought out before. But as I mentioned, judgment passage, judgment on, on Pharaoh as the king of Egypt, on, on the Egyptians... God has been announcing that he will judge Egypt, well, from Genesis chapter 15, as I'll bring in in just a minute, the first book of the Bible, but in the book of Ezekiel, uh, 29, uh, 30, 31, and 32. And God has been saying to them all along that he will take proud Pharaoh and the proud people and he'll make them low. We know there are many Bible sayings that we just know, we know that it's the Bible um, Pride goeth before destruction. Pride goeth before a fall. And one of the things that God finds obnoxious um, from um, Proverbs chapter 6, I think, six or seven things that God abominates. And one of them is pride, haughty eyes. And that's because the creature elevates himself above God. And for one of the sins, notwithstanding the idolatry and all the other things, God uh, is wrathful against the Egyptians because they're so proud. And God says, I will take you who think you're so high, and I'm going to bring you low. What we're looking at here is the judgment has finally come. So God's promise, 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 judgment, and then it finally comes. So this passage is not just an expression of God's promise of judgment, but it's a a picture of judgment day. And so there is such a thing as judgment day. I, I, I do realize, even though we're in a particular corner of Christianity and that we would acknowledge there is a judgment day. Many, many folks live like there is Christians, like there is not a judgment day. But there, there will be, as this passage teaches us, there will be a very specific time when when the enemies of God will be gathered before Him. And Matthew chapter twenty-five says it's going to be every human being is going to be before Judge Christ. And Judge Christ will come on the last day of human history. The first day of everlasting history when time will be radically changed and God will judge the nations. And this is a picture of that day. This is a picture of God judging the goats, excuse me, and not the sheep going away into salvation, but these are the goats going away into everlasting perdition. And so we speak about Judgment Day as under various uh, phrases the day of the Lord the day of vengeance the day of wrath all of those things are associated with and what we're looking at here and i hope to bring it out in the body of the sermon is god is offended with sinners and they have frittered away the day of grace or the day of mercy they've not come to god in christ and it's too late time is up so this is a a particular judgment day and as one of the lessons that we're learning as he's giving these repeated prophecies sometimes People live as if God has never said anything to them. Like I've never, where I've never heard this. I've never heard. This. You, you hear people sometimes say when they were converted, you know, I never heard the gospel before that. I was converted at 26 or 27. I have said this myself. I was converted at 26. I, well, I just never really heard the gospel before. Briefly before that. Well, that's not. I would argue that's probably not true. If we had the video camera of God telling us, I'm going to judge sinners or I'll save sinners in Christ, we probably have heard it hundreds, thousands of times. And my point with that is, God is repeatedly telling the Egyptians, I am going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. God told the Ninevites for 40 straight days, one sermon, I am going to judge you. I'm going to judge this place. And so God is just when he brings judgment. No one will be able to say, I I, I didn't know, I didn't hear this. The wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of men from heaven. And the sad thing is, when God reveals this repeatedly, judgment day is coming, for most of the world, it will catch them completely unaware, judgment day, even though perhaps they sat in churches that were faithful and actually preached messages like this. And they heard hundreds of times God will judge sinners apart from Christ and they will bear the condemnation. They heard it, but it will catch them unaware. I think it's J.C. Ryle that remarks that people, even when they're sick, and then when they come to actual dying time, that it catch, catches them completely by surprise. I can't believe I'm really going to die. Many, many people live like that. Like, there'll be no physical death. we will never come to death and certainly never be brought into to judgment. And so Jesus says that we should take care that this kind of a day, the day of God's vengeance, the day of our own death, um, even, would not catch us like a thief in the knife. But I'm very, I'm inclined to say that the better part of the world, this thing, even though God is constantly telling uh, people that he is a holy God and hates sin and will judge sin, and there is such a thing as judgment day. But you remember when Paul was preaching, and who could be a better preacher than Paul, even though he was accused of being a lousy preacher? But when Paul got around arguing with the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, and he got to the very part of his sermon, he said, and God will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus Christ. And what did those very wise, intellectual, learned, enlightened philosophers say? Judgment day. Judgment day. Bye. And that day would catch them unaware. And sadly, for many of the Egyptians, I have no doubt, after... Uh, four chapters of sermons or I don't know how many oracles, six six oracles in all, maybe even seven to the Egyptians, it catches them by utter surprise. Um, but it shouldn't surprise anybody. Certainly no one with a Bible should be surprised by this. So we should receive this by faith. And as I prayed from the book of Isaiah, that we should be those who tremble at God's word, which means we believe it. So, reference day of judgment on Egypt, reference of the day that God will judge. There is a specific time when Christ comes back. Beware of people that tell you there was a man, even a quasi-reformed man, I hate to say that, Harold something or other, who picked a day. Beware when people tell you they know the day. It's going to be in 2000 and whatever, such and so. On a, in his day um, was, um, I think it was a Thursday and I think it was like 6.30 at night because my wife was making me dinner and she was calling me and I, I didn't come and, and said, I'm counting down. Christ is supposed to come back for judgment day, but beware of people that set dates. Jesus says not even he knows as perplexing as that is when he'll come back. A couple of things regarding the judgment of Egypt. So when you study scripture, I mentioned uh, Genesis chapter 15, God judges physical e- e- Egypt. There's physical Egypt, that physically enslaves physical Jews. But then behind physical Egypt is a larger spiritual reality. So we could call it physical Egypt and then we could say um, physical, uh, spiritual Egypt. The same thing is true of Babylon. There is physical Babylon that God brought down and then there's behind that the greater reality, the spiritual reality of spiritual Babylon. That's why uh, the apostle Peter says, she who is in Babylon greets you. We are in Babylon. Martin Luther wrote about the Babylonian captivity. It's a spiritual thing derived from the principle of what was going on for for the Egyptians against the Jews and then for the Babylonians against the Jews. Let me read for us where God says to physical Egypt, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to bring a real sword because you've enslaved my real people. And and this really is the culmination of that. So I mentioned We have four chapters in Ezekiel, but there's a lot more than four chapters in God's word. From the very first book of of the Bible, God says to Egypt, I am a just God and I won't forget. Um, Genesis 15, verse 13, God said to Abram, this is before he's actually renamed Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, actually 430, but I will judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. So God has promised from the first book of the Bible that he will actually make good and he will punish those who will enslave his children. And we know when you look at how God judged physical Egypt, he did it through his servant Moses denouncing Pharaoh, denouncing the false gods of, of the Egyptians, and he brought various plagues. And even here in verse six, you have a plague of blood God says he's going to fill the whole land with blood. And then in verse seven and eight, excuse me, it's also indicative of those earlier Egyptian plagues. God says, I'm going to make darkness fill the whole land. And you know, both of those are plagues that happened to physical Egypt, the plague of blood in the rivers, and then the plague of darkness. And then how God made a distinction where his people lived in Goshen and they had none of those plagues. And he says, I'm going to make a distinction between my people and those who are not my people. It's not that the Jews were inherently better, it's that they were recipients of saving grace. And these people, the Egyptians, are seen apart from God's saving grace and the promised Christ. So God promises to judge physical Egypt, and as I've mentioned, behind that are greater spiritual realities. And to use the language of the Apostle Paul, behind all of this obnoxious idolatry and and the the, the the enmity, the warfare against God, against his people by the Egyptians, stands the reality of the devil. And these people would be considered children of darkness and enemies of God, enemies of Christ, enemies of God's people. Not because there's any racial or cultural or societal intrinsic wickedness, especially, especially uh, attributed to them, but because they're spiritually dead in their sins and trespasses, so let me read to you where Egypt is used in a spiritual sense. This is in the book of Revelation, which will really make sense if you understand Ezekiel, which is a symbolical book, and then Revelation, maybe even more of a symbolical book, but Revelation 11. Six, this is the, 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 I think this is the two witnesses. So these have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Yes, it's the two witnesses. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Egyptian-like. These are servants of God. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome and kill them. And their dead bodies, these are the two witnesses, will lie in the streets of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. What city was Jesus crucified outside of Jerusalem? The city of peace. And God says, spiritually, mystically, he's calling Jerusalem the city of peace, Sodom and Egypt. The great enslaver, the great antichrist, the great filthy sinner. And so this is God's promise of judgment on physical Egypt, and then on spiritual Egypt, or the forces behind spiritual Egypt, which is the devil and the devil's children. The passage, this chapter 2, if you, you look at it, your, your editors may arrange it in the type so that you can see that it, it, it runs in two oracles. And they may set it up so you can easily discern it. Verses 1 through 16 is the first oracle or prophecy. And this has to do with God saying that he is going to put Egypt or Pharaoh to death for their sins. And then verses 17 to 32 is the second oracle, which I think is the seventh sixth or seventh total oracle against Egypt, but it's the second oracle or prophecy in this chapter, and that's the funeral, that's the actual burial. So it's it, it, there's a logical progression. God will kill Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their sin. The wages of sin is death. So there's a death and then the second or- oracle logically there's going to be the burial. And that's why all of these various other, you have Edom, Elam, all of these things, the Assyrians, they're already in Sheol, they're already in the grave. And I would argue it's even pointing forward to hell. So there's the death for sin, and then there's the first death, which is physical death, and then there's the second death, which is eternal death and, uh, and perdition. So that's really what's being promised by God through God's man, To the Egyptians, but it's also spoken to the the Jews in Babylon. God's promising that He'll judge uh, those that have enslaved uh, them. So each, we've seen this before. If you look at verse, uh, I guess, one, verse two, excuse me, Son of Man, take up a lamentation. And then if you see, what did we say, verse 17, um, verse 18, excuse me, Son of Man, wail for the hordes of Egypt. Each oracle or prophecy takes the form of a lamentation. This is a funeral dirge and this is kind of the way that they would practice their expressions of sorrow at the death of of someone at at the funeral. There would be weeping, there would be wailing, there would be sackcloth and ashes. Some people are more profuse in their expressions of emotions. But what we are finding is That um, remember this this is the judgment of the unbelieving. The the Egyptians are the, the sinful unbelieving. When when an unbeliever dies, and I stress unbeliever, and I I know God alone knows, but God knows here, it's exceedingly sorrowful. They don't go to a better place. It's not um, it's not their 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 suffering is over. For the unbeliever, their suffering has just begun. We, we, we don't even have the words to express how horrible it will be when they die in their sins apart from Christ. And it's a cause, as God shows, he tells his prophet, I want you to weep for these people. I don't want you to weep. I, I, I want you to weep for them. So these are enemies of God, enemies of God's people, but they're dying in their sin. And God says to his prophet, I want you to cry. I want you to weep. Not just a little tear, not just a little choking back, the, you know, feeling a little bad, but weep and wail. And then he says, now when you come to their funeral, I want you to weep and wail. This is the death of the ungodly. The Bible says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, Ecclesiastes. I quote it all the time. And it's informative because we're all going to die. And the believer is going to die. And it will, it will be beyond description how good it will be. When we die, the Bible says in the book of Corinthians, it hasn't even entered into our minds how, as good as you may think it is to die in Christ and what it will be like to die in Christ, to see Christ, we can't even imagine how good it will be. But the, the opposite is being taught. We, we, we cannot even imagine when we go to the, the funeral of a, an Egyptian, a Christ hater, I'm not talking Egyptian culturally or ethnically, I'm talking a An enemy of God, an enemy of God's people, an enemy of holiness, a promoter of sin, an agent of the devil. The funeral is exceedingly sad. And it's meant to instruct us that um, life is very, very short and eternity is, is real and very, very long and that we should do all that we can to fly to Christ that we not receive judgment for our sins. So this is all because of sin. Death for sin, funerals for sin, weeping and wailing for sin. And it's for the sinner that perishes from this life apart from God's Christ. So let's, let, let's look at some lessons that we, we learned from this particular passage. We've talked about a lot of them already. But a few things, just very basically, what do we learn by this? What do God's people learn by it? What do the Egyptians learn by it? That God is, There there really is a God. Wayne Murphy sent me a text the other day that said, and it was a, it was a, I don't know, not a survey, but, uh, some kind of census, that by the year 20, 2070, that America would no longer be a Christian nation anymore. Like, numerically, people would no longer claim to be Christians. And that atheism, and then they used the term, not nothing, nothingism, but something like nothingism, I know it's probably not even a word, but nothing, I'm a nothing, um, is on the rise and that it was calculated by some actuary that by 2070, that we would be in the minority of people saying that we're Christians, we believe in the God of the Bible, Christ, fully God, fully man, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There wouldn't even be professing Christians that the atheists would outstrip us. This passage, Judgment Day, this passage teaches us that God is, that God really is. And we live in a time... Uh, I'm not that old, but I'm not that young either. Um, There there was a time in our country that you would you wouldn't win office if you said you were an atheist. You would never be a politician that would win anything if you openly denied the Trinity or openly rejected the two natures of Jesus, something like that. If you got on the, we even see it now. Sometimes presidents stand in front of a church with a giant Bible because they're trying to give a nod. But those days are fast going away. In atheism, and you know that this is true. Atheism once, even if you were an atheist, say in the 1700s, I I know Thomas Jefferson wasn't an atheist, he was a deist, but he was at least culturally savvy enough not to express too vehemently his rejection of biblical orthodoxy, even back then. I would argue that the shackles of religious decency, which is what perhaps I'll call it, they're gone. Gone, 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 gone. Um, Atheist, to, to, to actually... Profess that you are an atheist is considered in our time right now almost as a sign of enlightenment that you have thrown off the shack, the primitive shackles of this God of the Bible, holy God, God of judgment, God who hates sin, judgment day, blood atoning son. You've thrown that off and you've actually seen the folly. There are guys that make their living by promoting atheism, and so you'll see young people come up who say, Oh no, I, I don't believe any of this, I'm an atheist as if this is a a mark of intellectual prowess or moral advancement. Beloved, Judgment Day, Judgment Day will make it utterly impossible to be an atheist or agnostic or whatever you want to call it, whatever that nothingness name is. I'm just a nothing. I don't want to be dogmatic. I don't want to come down too hard on Christ, for Christ and so on. And I'm enlightened after all, not like those hypocrites Judgment Day will testify to Egyptians, to Babylonians, the Edomites, the Sodomites, that the God that they denied is the God that is. And I know people say, well, you're going you're gonna to frighten people with that? Well, this is a frightening thing. This is a frightening thing. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I'm sorry to tell you, uh, you have cancer. That's a frightening thing. But if you have cancer, you want your doctor to tell you the truth. And does it scare you? Yes, it might scare you enough to, t- to follow their directions if there's hope for you so when we look at this god is saying judgment day is coming and it's going to convince you that these false gods are not gods but in the day in which we live it's not so much people are following false gods is that they think that they're god so when someone says they're an atheist and see i'm more enlightened than you who hold to a form of orthodox christianity they're really not atheists they're really deifying themselves it's just the lie of the devil but I know that it's presented as you're enlightened. You're not narrow-minded. You're not bigoted. You're broad-minded. Therefore, you, you deny a God of judgment, a God of holiness, a God that requires blood satisfaction uh, for the wages of sin. And I, beloved, I, I do think I am correct in that, that atheism is, is, is growing. I think Wayne Murphy's text to me was correct, exactly correct, But I didn't want to write back to him, I don't think you need to wait to 2070 uh, where their true Christians will be in the minority. Um, I I know that the census was referencing uh, people who consider themselves Christians, and I'm using the phrase true Christian, meaning really born again. I would say that we're in the minority already. Um, So this passage teaches the existence of God. It teaches the utter foolishness of denying God. And as I mentioned, Judgment Day will convince people. It will not be possible to evade it. Right now, the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And I've mentioned this so many times before, but even as an unbeliever, watching my children come out of my my wife, this was Psalm 139. A little human being came out of that human being and that little human being is an amalgamation of this human being and my wife human being. How does this work? What an amazing thing. So even unconverted by the Holy Spirit, we should be able to discern that there is a God. So, so creation testifies there is a God. Redemption certainly testifies there is a God. And the, the redemptive revelation teaches God is Savior. But if God is not our Savior, he's going to be this judge. When men die, women die, they'll either see God in Christ as judge or they'll see him as their savior. He's either going to be their enemy uh, apart from uh, Christ or he will be their friend, even their father. So all of the folks, you ever watch the YouTube channels of the very smart, intellectually gifted British fellows with wonderful sounding British accents? how they claim to be agnostic, which is just a cowardly atheist, and claiming to be so wise. And perhaps they could even tie a Christian minister in knots. And I'm not denying that they can There are some very, very smart unbelievers. Um, There are no atheists suffering the judgment of God in hell right now. There are no atheists. They know that the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. They know the Bible is the Word of God. And they know the wages of sin, and that's what this day is meant to teach us. Is a frightening truth, um, I know, but this truth is considered in most churches passe. You you don't tell people this because it's not a crowd pleaser, but it is the stuff of um, God's word. So when we look at the judgment of God, and one of the reasons we read from our confession, chapter nineteen. God only judges sinners. If you're not a sinner, you don't need Jesus Christ. If you're not a sinner, you don't need to worry about Judgment Day. So if you, if you have kept the law of God perfectly and never sinned internally, externally, in thought, word, and deed, ever, you've kept it perfectly, you don't have to worry about it. You don't need to say, Thou Son of David, because you're not a sinner. You don't need to come to Christ because you're not a sinner. God only judges sinners, only people that have broken the law. So if you've never broken the law, I guess you're okay. But everybody's broken the law. And we reference from uh, our chapter 19, the first two chapters dealt with the moral law. And then the second article, uh, the third paragraph, deals with the ceremonial. And the fourth, I think, the judicial law of God. But what we're looking at when God says, I'm going to bring these sinners to judgment, they're going to die. And then they're going to be cast away from my presence in the pit, in Sheol, even in hell. It's the penalty due to sinners. And it it shows us that God is, but that God is a holy God. And in relationship to the holiness of God is the righteousness of God, which is a legal term. And I may or may not have mentioned this. Um, My my wife's uncle, um, called Rai Porchacha, asked me, when he came to my house a number of years ago, what does it mean to be born again? And so we had a discussion. He's a Hindu. We had a discussion, and I said, Raipur Chacha, if you sin, you do a bad thing, and you, he believed in God, he believes there's are a God, how do you, and I asked him, how do you get that bad thing off of you? And he said, that's easy. I do a good thing. And that's kind of logical. If you do a bad thing, to get rid of that bad thing, you do a good thing. So my next question is, well, what would happen if God's law... death for, for a bad thing rather than a good thing for a bad thing. And he said, if that's true, then I have a problem. That's the problem, beloved. The wages of sin is not to try to do a good thing. It's too late. James says, if you've broken even one law, you've done what? You've broken the whole thing? That's why when our brother read from this, in chapter 19, paragraph 1, per, personal, perpetual, perfect obedience. You know, I rail against, tonight. I don't feel like railing against anything tonight, but against federal vision. They tell you that God grades on the curve, that that's not true, that it's not personal, perfect obedience. And then they tell you to get busy. How, how busy should I get? Just pretty busy. The Bible says you better be perfectly busy. Beloved, it's just not possible. God says here, I'm going to judge you and condemn you to death for your sin. And what's our only hope if he requires death? The sin bearer, who pays for our death with his own death. That's why John Owen wrote that treatise that even non-reformed people say it's not answerable. He calls it the death of death. Christ dies that we who should die, we, we can live. And so here God tells us, I'm going to judge you because I judge sinners. Um, our question from the larger catechism, question 152. What does every sin deserve at the hands of God? Many Christians don't believe what I'm about to read to you, but chapter 32, with the death of the Egyptians and then ultimately the condemnation of them teaches this truth, very basic. What does every sin deserve at the hands of a God? Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God and against His righteous law deserves his wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. That's this. That's this. God will judge. God is. God is holy. God is righteous. And God must exact the penalty for sinning against him. Either we will be our own death bearer, Or we will look to Jesus Christ as our death bearer, sin assuager, sin atoner, righteousness procurer. And one of the other things that we learn looking at a passage like this, which perhaps was one of the reasons why I love the Reformed faith, there's lots of reasons why I love the Reformed faith, is, is it expresses the sovereignty of God. And when I say the sovereignty of God, just not over election, it's much bigger. The sovereignty of God is much bigger than election. The sovereignty of God, if I could use the language of our catechism, is that he governs all that he creates, and he creates all. The sovereignty of God here, you see, God says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians against the Egyptians, and I'm going to bring you to death, and then I'm going to put you in the grave with all of these other various nations. And then in so doing, I'll use various agents against you. I'll use the Babylonians. So I will orchestrate the Babylonian army. I'll move Nebuchadnezzar to come and to put one tyrant to put down another tyrant and then I'm going to call the birds of the air to feast on your flesh and I'm going to do it all. Beloved, this is Martin Luther said God is so sovereign that even the, 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 the dust that flies off of the ox cart God has ordained it. This is Ephesians 1, 11 In God's secret counsel he's ordained everything. How does it work with sin? He's not the author of sin. He's not culpable for sin. Only the moral agent is culpable but he governs it. My wife and I have some things that we're going through, not specifically together, but in our family, which I sometimes wish wasn't there, um, but that's when I'm being silly, because whatever my God ordains is right, that I have to say, God means something good by this. I don't know what. And I know he's governing it. How is he governing it? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that he is. And What's interesting, and sometimes you hear in certain circles, maybe evangelical, broad evangelical, which I, in the technical sense, we're all evangelical, but they'll say, "God is such a gentleman; He'll never intrude and come into your life unless you ask Him." Beloved, that is so silly. That is so that's so silly. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, chapter twenty-one, verse one, that He moves the, the hearts of kings like rivers. Pagan kings. He calls pagan. He calls Cyrus my servant, my, my Mashiach, he, who's a pagan. He calls Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, a pagan. He uses him as an agent of vengeance and justice. And so he calls one pagan and says, you go and strike this other pagan and bring him to the grave for his sins. And Nebuchadnezzar, the Egyptians, um, earlier before Nebuchadnezzar, I think Nebuchadnezzar was converted in chapter 4 in Daniel, but that's another side. God governs even the unbeliever. And he, he governs even the birds, even the beasts. In the book of Revelation, I'm not going to look there, but he says, I call to the birds, and they come. And he says, come have your feasts on the great men of the earth, which is, will reach its zenith um, on, I think, at the Battle of Armageddon, which we, even as Presbyterians, believe that. So God is sovereign. He's sovereign over men. He's sovereign over believing men. That's why sometimes people say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, so What? Well, then the moral law is not applicable to me. That's utterly ridiculous. You're the creature of God. You are obligated to God. It doesn't matter whether you deny it. All of God's commandments will be required of you, and you're going to be required to pay for the wage of breaking them. He governs animals. And another thing we see, which is related to the sovereignty of God over the judgment of Egypt, is, and perhaps I've already expressed it, is an expression of God's intimacy, intimacy. This is against, as I mentioned, Thomas Jefferson, the deist, which deism held that there is a God. He creates everything, and then he goes on a holiday. He has um, his natural laws, and he winds the clock up, and then he walks away. That's, that's not God. Look at this passage. He's very intimate. He's intimate. He's, he knows every enemy. He knows every friend, every child. He knows the birds. He, he's intimate with everything. And he superintends everything that goes on, This is meant to to warn the unbeliever, but to encourage us as believers. When I say God is intimate with us, it's an expression of his omnipresence and it's an expression of his omniscience. God testifies to both attributes here. And Omnipresence is just a fancy word. means that God is with us everywhere we go. Let's just take it away from judgment. We who have passed from death to life as Christians, we live in the presence of God. We, We live... Every moment of every day of our lives, we are in the immediate presence of God. We God is with us every moment. Every moment. The omnipresence of the Father, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We, God is here right now, everywhere we go. And He's omniscient. He knows everything. Read chapter two of our confession is regarding the, the knowledge of God. It's beyond. And God is telling his people. This is the kind of God that I am. We barely we look and think, well, how's it going to happen with Russia and the Ukraine and the, the midterm elections and what's going to happen is Trump going to run again and what is in the world is going on? And we study this and study that. Oh, beloved. Oh. Everything. Every God has absolutely everything. He knows it. He knows his children, he knows his enemies. And everything occurs in his presence. And he's ordained everything. The day of judgment. The day that he'll liberate his children. But the intimacy of God is meant to comfort us. But it's also a very sobering um, fact. There's a person I'm acquainted with, not a person at this church, that a very wise PCA minister told this person, who's wrestling with some particular sins, that when you're tempted to this particular sin... Remember the omnipresence of God in Christ. That everything that you do is before the face of God. That's a sobering thought, even for a believer, is it not? That everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do is done before the face of God. It's very sobering. I I think this is a sobering passage, but it teaches that. And and I I guess I want to end with this. It shows us the existence of God, that God is. It shows us the, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. He's, he, he hates sin, and that God will judge s- sinners. It shows us the sovereignty of God, that he's intimate. The last thing this passage shows us, with the death of the sinner and then the funeral of the sinner, the burial of the sinner, it, it shows us the heart of God. I mentioned that, verse 2 and verse um, 18, God tells Ezekiel, I want you to weep. This is the inspired word of God. It reveals the death of the sinner, and and I cannot reconcile this. So you may say, Pastor, I think you're not being very Calvinistic there. Maybe you should check in your reform card. I'll tell you right away, I can't reconcile this. I can't figure it out. It shows us the heart of God. God has already said this in chapter 28. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God has ordained this. God has ordained this. God will bring the sinner who dies apart from Christ into judgment. I hate to use this language, but I'm going to have to use it because I don't know what else to say. And I don't mean to be like sentimental. It breaks the heart of God. I don't like to say it that way, but he speaks like that. When God says to his his servant, I want you to weep. To weep for what? The sinner that I'll bring to judgment. I want you to weep for them. This is the heart of our God. Sometimes we who are Reformed Calvinists, boy, we um, I love the Reformed faith. I like the precision in our theology. But um, sometimes we're not so good on the mercy and the tenderness and the love and the kindness and the forgiveness. Jesus Christ wept over Jerusalem. So I know you think, well, Pastor John, how can God weep over people that he has determined con- to condemn. That's the part I can't reconcile. But he does. He-, he does. And God tells his preacher, I want you to weep over sinners that die apart from Jesus. I want you to cry over it. Derek Thomas, who's way smarter than I am, second president, no, not second. Is he in second? I don't know. South Carolina, Columbia, Welsh guy. He writes in his commentary when was the last time you ever wept over a lost sinner? Boy,, that in, in, I don't think anybody's accusing Derek Thomas of being an Armenian. When was the last time you ever wept over a lost sinner? That's a good question. It's a really good question, because it reveals the heart of God that he doesn't take any pleasure at the death of the sinner it, manifests his justice, his holiness. I've already said all of those things. But God says to a man who's called by God to preach judgment against sinners, he says, I want you to do it with a broken heart. I want you to weep over it. I want you to weep for these people, like Christ, like Christ. I know it was um, Barn, not Barn House. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, J. Vernon McGee. I, J. Vernon McGee was um, Georgia, raised in Georgia. Presbyterian, and then became a Baptist and taught at um, the, the dispensational school. Not a, not a reformed guy. Say what you want about J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee said he never spoke about judgment in hell with any kind of levity. It, it, it always broke his heart. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We should weep over the impending danger of those sinners who don't know God in Christ. And we should manifest what we see here. Just a broken hearted love and gentleness, such that we would say, oh sinner, why will you die? Why will you live in your sin? Why will you not repent and live? God wants those, especially who deal in his word, to be, and I hate to say this as well, because I know emotions can be a tricky thing, but to be emotionally affected with the word of God that he's called to preach, in emotionally attached to the people that he's preaching to. The Apostle Paul says, The principle from which we preach and teach to you is love. We love. It's out of, out of love that God's minister says to them, The wages of sin is death. And he, he weeps over those who don't come to God in Christ. Those thoughts from the book of Ezekiel. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.